Congress has allocated billions of dollars in military spending at breakneck speed to fuel the war in Ukraine and is moving to permanently expand the U.S.-NATO war machine. But no such urgency can be found when it comes to the plight of tens of millions of people going hungry, experiencing homelessness, or living in deep poverty in the richest country on Earth. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to today's episode of In the News, our Tuesday show on the socialist program with Brian Becker. It's March 15th, 2022. This is an in-depth look at the biggest stories in the news right now, today, and this week. We look beyond the headlines and expose the distortions in the corporate-owned media. Video episodes of The Real Story are available on Breakthrough News, Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern at youtube.com slash breakthrough news. If you enjoy our show, please support this independent programming by going to patreon.com slash the socialist program and subscribing. And register for our monthly seminar with Brian, which will be held next Tuesday, March 22nd at 7 p.m. Eastern. Patrons at any tier, which starts at just $5 a month, can submit questions for Brian to address on the seminar and ask questions live during the discussion. I'm Nicole Roussel, here with Esther Ibarim, Walter Smolarik, and our host, Brian Becker. Esther Ivarim is also the host of the radio show and podcast On the Ground at onthegroundshow.org. Make sure to check out On the Ground, which comes out weekly on Fridays. Brian, let's talk about Ukraine. Let's talk about the no-fly zone. Just a couple of weeks ago, most people in the United States, according to the polls, were against the United States playing a major role in Ukraine. And then within a few days, and after this barrage of constant propaganda in the U.S. media about the the Russian invasion of Ukraine, public opinion has shifted dramatically. Instead of not wanting to be involved, the majority opinion, according to a recent CNN survey, now favor a no-fly zone. And, you know, what is a no-fly zone? People think, oh, a no-fly zone, that means Russian planes can't drop bombs and missiles on Ukrainians. Like, wouldn't that be a good idea? The only way to enforce a no-fly zone, and we know this from Iraq in 19, throughout the 1990s, we know this from NATO's war against Libya in 2011, the only way to enforce a no-fly zone is to shoot down the planes that you don't want flying in that area. So a no-fly zone means that the United States Air Force, the biggest air force in the world, and NATO are going to shoot down Russian military aircraft And Vladimir Putin made it clear that if any of the countries in NATO engage in this conflict, they are going to be considered to be part of the conflict, meaning that they will become, from Russia's point of view, legitimate targets. So if you want nuclear war, if you want war between the two biggest nuclear powers, the United States has tens of thousands of nuclear weapons and about 6,000, 7,000 that are actually, you know, ready to be used. Russia has about 5,000 nuclear weapons. That's about 10,000 nuclear weapons. And it would only take a couple, really, only take a few hydrogen bombs 
to basically extinguish society as we know it, life as we know it on the planet Earth. And if you think that's a good idea, then you should be actually advocating for a no-fly zone because that's what a no-fly zone means. Again, this is a dangerous development because as each side has climbed the escalation ladder for the past few months, it's very easy to go up that ladder for politicians. Like when Biden said, well, maybe we won't have a full-scale war depending on the size of a Russian incursion. He was blasted by the Washington Post and the other mass media. So then he took it back, basically. He said, well, no, no, that's not what I meant. I didn't mean a, a minor incursion might not elicit full-scale war. That's not what I meant. So Biden, accused for being weak, he climbs the escalation ladder. That's a way of protecting himself. When you have the politicians on all sides in a conflict doing the same, that's how you end up with war. Remember at the beginning of the, the clamor for the United States to bomb Libya and to destroy Libya, the country in Africa that had the highest standard of living in all of Africa. At first, Barack Obama said, I, I'm not sure that's a good idea. Robert Gates, who's no liberal, but he was the Secretary of Defense for Obama, he too said, he used these words, these are euphemistic words, he said, the United States has no strategic interest in Libya, meaning it's not worth going into military confrontation. But the Clintonites, and they dominate the U.S. State Department now, the Washington Post, they started condemning Obama as the passive president. They were mocking Obama. So what's the easy way for a politician not to be mocked, you know, when they suggest restraint? Get rid of the re restraint. Get rid of the caution. Climb the escalation ladder. Show that you're a real man, that you're really ready to go to war. And that's how you climb the escalation ladder. And here we are 11 years later. Libya was destroyed. Still no central government in Libya. African slave markets for sub-Saharan Africans reappeared in Tripoli and other parts of Libya. I mean, that's what it means when you demand that the politicians climb the escalation ladder. We have audio clips. The, the U.S. media, the so-called liberal media, there's nothing liberal about it. If anything, the U.S. media is more hawkish. You know, they skewer the politicians who don't demand like the most extreme militarist outcome. So that's where we are right now. People are the bulk of the population, if the surveys are to believed, now support the tactic that is the most likely to lead to thermonuclear war. Does that protect Ukrainians? No, that means Ukrainians will be gone. They will be extinguished. Does it protect Russians or Americans? No, that means a nuclear war here will be unlike anything anybody in this society has ever experienced or even possibly imagined. So we are in a dangerous moment where the safe thing for politicians is to sound more and more warlike. And ultimately, you know, if the war starts to go badly, if a, a plane gets shot down, if a U.S. plane gets shot down, if some more American journalists get killed and the crescendo of voices demanding more and more and more war, yeah, we could be on the verge of a thermonuclear war for people who are not old enough to remember, and that would be most people. The Cuban Missile Crisis was not anticipated a couple months before it happened, but if Nikita Khrushchev had not at the last moment capitulated to U.S. demands when the U.S. set up a naval blockade of Soviet ships, in other words, if the Soviets had not said, yes, uncle, we're going to take those missiles out of Cuba, there would have been thermonuclear war. That's how close it was. 
So anyway, that's where we are, everybody. And by the way, the military industrial complex, they're not scared. They're happy. The military war contractors, they're not unhappy. They're very happy. When the Pentagon budget goes up another $13.5 billion, more than it was supposed to be increased because of the Ukraine war, that makes all of them very happy. Stock market is volatile right now, but uh, war corporations, so-called defense contractors, they're doing quite well. And in the meantime, childhood poverty in the United States spiked by, you can't imagine this number, 41% in just the month of January 2022 because of all of the reductions and cuts and elimination of benefits that existed during the COVID emergency. Yeah, so here we have it. Uh, The Pentagon and the war contractors getting ever more bloated, more and more money, the danger of thermonuclear war becoming ever closer, and poor people being relentlessly attacked by the capitalist government and the corporate media that don't give a damn about people. Whenever they're crying crocodile tears about Ukrainians, just remember... All of this could have been avoided if the U.S. had just said yes instead of saying no to Russia's legitimate security demands that Ukraine be or continue to be a neutral country. Anyway, that's where we are right now. Yeah, I mean, just to add some detail about the about the horror that Brian's talking about, the horror of nuclear war. You know, the reason that a nuclear exchange, quote unquote, a nuclear war would kill all human life on Earth and most other forms of life on Earth as well is because it would literally block out the sun. I mean, that's what we're talking about. It's called a nuclear winter. When enough nuclear weapons are detonated at once, it would kick up so much dirt and soil and dust and debris into the atmosphere that the sun's light could not penetrate it and the Earth would be encased in centuries of darkness. So we're not just saying that like everybody would be blown up in a mushroom cloud because the people who survive the mushroom clouds or whose bodies aren't devoured by cancer caused by the radiation, they would starve to death because there would be no sunlight on earth and no food could grow. That is basically the guaranteed outcome of a no-fly zone, a, a thing that now three quarters of the population, according to some opinion polls, have been convinced to support. That's that's the guaranteed outcome of a no-fly zone. But there's one one other more hopeful note that I want to raise here. I saw another opinion poll asking this question: like, do you support a no-fly zone or not? And this was commissioned by, I believe, CBS. It found that 59% of people in the United States support a no-fly zone, 41% oppose. However, They asked a follow-up question. They said, do you still support a no-fly zone over Ukraine if it's viewed as an act of war by Russia? And to that question, only 38% of people said they would support and 62% say they would oppose. Like, why isn't that the question? Because it is the question. Why aren't the American people being asked, hey, would you support a global world war with Russia if that would be the outcome of a no-fly zone. Do you want that or not? Why wouldn't that be the question? Because it is the question. Well, right. I think that goes back to some of what you were saying, Brian, about the way the media is covering this. Like, that's a huge component of this. You know, if the media coverage about this is, and we can play some some clips that Esther found from some of the Sunday talk shows, you know, if the media coverage is pushing politicians, pushing, 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 you know, to be more and more hawkish, like you were talking about, kind of creating this warmongering climate, then, you know, that's where people's brains are at. 
And so it's not even why aren't the polls asking those questions? It's why isn't the news covering that as that being a logical consequence of a possible no-fly zone? Like, why aren't there commentators who are saying those things? Those people aren't on mainstream TV. Right. And one of the the coverage of one poll, it did take the time to explain that most people did not know what a no-fly zone was. And the people did not know that there were all these implications to having a no-fly zone. So I think that that's responsible coverage. But just doing these polls and then publishing the, the contents as if most Americans are rah, rah, ready to go to war. I think that's really irresponsible, but that's mm-hmm. what's happening. Yep. That's what's happening. It's a really good point because when you say a no-fly zone, like you said, Brian, in your introduction, and you know when you say a no-fly zone, if that just means... Well, yeah, I, I'm seeing all these like horrible images. I'm seeing all this, you know, chaos and violence and pain. I want it to stop. I want it to stop. I want it to stop. And a no-fly zone is what the news is talking about as a thing to make it stop. That sounds good. But it sounds uh, like a ceasefire. It sounds like a ceasefire. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it but, sounds like a ceasefire. But when you don't, when the news doesn't include the information or doesn't kind of explain what the mechanism is for enforcing that, what it actually means in reality, you know, that the United States would be compelled to shoot down Russian planes and therefore climb the escalation ladder much, much further. I mean, that's Russia, the reality. Russia will retaliate. Exactly. If the, US, if the U.S. shoots down Russian planes, Vladimir Putin, he actually could not not retaliate because if you don't retaliate, after you've made a warning that says don't get engaged, then it looks like you're just bluffing. And that's very dangerous. You can't allow it. So, Walter, I mean, the entire equation here that has to be fully understood is that Russia, by invading Ukraine, and again, we're not supporting the Russian invasion of Ukraine, but their decision to invade, which was premised on the notion that the U.S. is obviously not going to negotiate with us. They're obviously going to place advanced nuclear weapons into Ukraine, whether it's a formal member of NATO or a de facto member. And once those missiles are there, we're never going to get rid of them. So since this is going to happen, we're going to take the first step. We're going to shoot first. And then because they shot first, the Russians appear to be the aggressors. And of course, they are the aggressors in the sense that they've invaded Ukraine. But if you decontextualize the military action by Russia from the actual reality of what the U.S. did, including the same U.S. media that's promoting the no-fly zone, where they deliberately, provocatively, recklessly insisted for some reason that Ukraine must be allowed to be a staging ground for advanced nuclear weapons on Russia's border, they are responsible And again, it's like somebody creates a fight and then steps back and says, oh, look at those idiots fighting each other, when in fact they were the ones who created the environment where the fight becomes inevitable. Anyway, go ahead, Walter. Yeah, and that was a long-term process, a long-term process. I mean, at least a 25-year-long process where Russia was pushed back up against a, a wall, up into a corner. You know, the expansion of NATO began in 1997, 2008 was the first time that Georgia and Ukraine's membership in NATO was first officially raised to countries that share a border with Russia. Not just raised. In the Bucharest summit, the U.S. said Georgia and Ukraine should come in, to which the Germans and the French said, hey, wait, that's that's a bad idea. And we know now from the WikiLeaks document, right, that 
the American representative, who's now the head of U.S. intelligence, said if the U.S. incorporates Georgia into or Ukraine into NATO, this will be a confrontation. It's not going to be acceptable. Yeah, so they knew exactly what they were getting into. They knew exactly what they were getting into. And and in fact, you know, what I think they were hoping for is that the Russian government would just collapse underneath the weight of the pressure and they could have another Yeltsin-style compliant government in power in Russia. But in order to get that outcome, they were willing to risk exactly what ended up happening, a war, a devastating war that they spent essentially an entire generation promoting and making inevitable. So I think it's really important to just think about how Congress especially has been ratcheting up this drive to war and escalating, you know, within their own capacity, the tensions over there. So we know that Blinken was trying to get Poland to offer planes to this fight and Poland turned them down. We know that since then, the members of Congress have been trying to push for this very same thing. And when we heard Senator Amy Klobuchar talk on the Sunday talk shows, speak to CNN, she's still, despite the fact that the Biden administration is backing down on that, she's still calling for planes and other types of ways to escalate the whole air control of the war. So I think we have a clip of her. Let's talk about military uh, aid for uh, for Ukraine. You said that the U.S. talks this past week to give Polish or other NATO fighter jets to Ukraine were, quote, the right thing. But National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan just told me that President Biden decided flying planes from NATO bases into contested airspace, quote, doesn't make sense. Is that a mistake? Well, first of all, there's a lot of us that would like to see the planes over there. And I know the Secretary of State, Tony Blinken, uh, talked about it just last weekend. I think one of the things that Jake is getting at is at some point there's been so much focus on these planes, uh, especially these particular planes, uh, that they themselves could become a target. The Russians are well aware of this. Um, and one of the things we have to remember is this is all about air defense. And you can do it with planes. You can do it with drones, which have been incredibly effective uh, in Ukraine. All right. You can have planes. You can have drones. Sorry, Amy. It's the same thing. I mean, the Russians have said that if the U.S. or NATO countries engage, they're going to be in the war, meaning that they will be legitimate targets. By the way, the U.S., we just talked about the U.S. military budget. The real budget is about $800 billion this year. And then if you include the Department of Homeland Security and the Department of Energy, the real number is about a trillion, right? A trillion a year, $10 trillion defense package over the next 10 years. I mean, that's if they talked about it the way they talked about Build Back Better, the huge price tag for Build Back Better. But the combined military spending of all 29 other NATO countries is $363 billion. So the U.S. military- A year? Yeah, $363 billion for the other 29. The U.S. military budget is about $800 billion. That's like a third. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's 29 countries. So when we're talking oh about God. NATO, let's be real about this. It's not really NATO. It's really in the United States wow. with this camouflage, this mask called NATO. I mean, America is the military power. Even when, when Obama said that the United States was going to 
participate in the bombing of Libya. Remember he said he w- we were going to lead from behind? I don't know if you all remember that, lead from behind. No, the U.S. <laughs> isn't leading from behind. The U.S. is the military leader of NATO. And by the way, you have the U.S. spends $800 billion, right, almost per year. The other NATO countries, the other 29, $363 billion. So now you're up to about $1.2 trillion. What does Russia spend for its military budget? $60 billion. $60 billion. Less than one-twelfth the oh size gosh. of the U.S. military budget. And that's the reality. So when you look at what's going on, Russia is not going to war in some faraway place. Russia is going to war on its border against the NATO military alliance with, as we're now saying, $1.2 trillion annually in military spending and insisting that Ukraine, that shares this 1,200-mile-long border with Russia, should have the right and will have the right to be incorporated into NATO so NATO can place these kind of weapons with this kind of magnitude of weaponry right along Russia's border such that Russia would never be able to defend against it. If we ever, ever, ever forget those simple facts, then we don't understand what's actually going on. And just to throw in one more fact there, Brian, the total size of Russia's economy is about $1.4 trillion. So NATO's military spending is essentially the entire size of Russia's economy. And the U.S. economy in size is about $22 trillion per year. Italy's economy is bigger than Russia's. South Korea's economy is bigger than Russia's. I mean, when Russia was the Soviet Union, it was the second biggest economy in the world. And of course, the second largest military power. But it lost about 100 million people with the dissolution of the Soviet Union. It's you know, geostrategic power largely diminished. By the way, there's all this talk about the Russian oligarchs. So who are the American oligarchs? Let's name three. Jeff Bezos. Bill Gates. Bill Gates, Elon Musk. Those three. Yeah. Their combined wealth, the three of them, the three American oligarchs, <laughs> is $534 billion. That would be larger for those three than the top 100 Russian oligarchs combined wealth. Wow. So again, it's just important to put, you know, the language that we're used to hearing about Russia in the media into some real context so that people have a, a sense of the ratio and dimension of things. And, you know, just to add a few more, I think, important pieces of information in this conversation, both about language and about you know, the right wing nature of the current politicians, you know, a couple of people have said this morning, but I want to give these exact figures. The Defense Department budget is 13.5 billion more right now as Congress has settled on it. 13.5 billion more than the department asked for. And even specifically with the aid to Ukraine, there's 3.6 billion more than the Defense Department itself asked for for Ukraine itself. So Already billions more that could be used on things for people here in the United States. And also a Republican representative, Mike Turner, who is on the Intelligence and House Armed Services Committee in the in Congress. And this is a reported from BreakingDefense.com, not exactly like a progressive publication. Quoting from this article, happily, Mike Turner happily said the bill looks, quote, relatively like a Republican defense bill, unquote. So again, you know, this is the House coming together to get this bipartisan war machine bill passed more than the Defense Department even wanted. So in the spending bill, I'm not sure if that's the same piece of legislation you were talking about. In the spending bill they passed last Wednesday, it included 
$13.6 billion for Ukraine, yep. right? But it excluded $15 billion, which had been allocated for coronavirus relief, uh, to fund treatments, research to combat new variants, and for funding for global vaccination. <laughs> so the Biden administration is far behind in its stated obligations or promises to help combat COVID internationally with these vaccines. So that's part of it. I just want to drive home that point. I mean, essentially, the additional money that Congress just decided to add more than the Defense Department itself even asked for would have pretty much funded the coronavirus. That's it's the same bill. It would have funded the coronavirus measures you're discussing. Right. And then I guess this is the same bill that includes seven hundred and eighty two billion in U.S. military spending, twenty nine more, twenty nine billion more than Biden requested. And so there was a, a tweet from Peter Maybardic. He's director of Public Citizens Access to Medicines program. And he wrote on Twitter that failing to fund the fight against COVID is a basically a choice to extend the pandemic. But when you were talking about the military spending earlier, Brian, I wanted to add this article that someone brought to my attention because it's not just U.S. military spending in terms of taking up all of this, these resources here at home, but this war and the way that the United States has been able to kind of cobble together this renewed strength among you know NATO partners, it means that they're selling more arms to them. Sure. <laughs> so Germany is going to buy the U.S. F-35 stealth fighter. It's almost like a joke, right? Isn't this the plane that they keep trying to end the program because the plane has so many problems? And not only is it not ending, but now they're like, you know, foisting all these like defective planes off on NATO allies. It reminds me of how they always talk about selling all these weapons to Taiwan. And it's always like the year before models or the models that are almost obsolete are the same ones that they sell to the Saudis. So it's this is a weapons machine. It's a real boom for the weapons industry here. Well, I'm glad you mentioned the F-35 because a lot of military experts and we interviewed some of the designers of some of the biggest aircraft in our old radio show, basically say that the F-35 is essentially an ineffective warfighting plane. But the way the military-industrial-congressional complex was created, the subcontractors building the F-35 exist in 46 of the 50 states. So in Congress, and they've spread this out all over the country so that all of the politicians in Congress don't want the F-35 to stop because there's some production going on in their state. So not only is the F-35 an ineffective war fighting technology, not only is it very designed in a way or spread out in terms of the production so that it'll, it will never be canceled, but it costs a lot. I mean, Walter, I think the cost per plane is about a hundred million dollars. And I, Per plane, $100 million per plane. So if one of those planes gets shot down or crashes, I can remember that there were some problems with an F-35 running into, a, I think a bunch of pigeons brought one down because it got caught in their <laughs> fan or something. It's an unbelievable amount of money. I mean, think about you know how many schools have been closed down in, in cities and towns across the country. Think about how many you know, health professionals have been laid off. I mean, it's unbelievable, but even amid COVID, I mean, huge numbers of, of nurses and doctors are losing their jobs. Yeah, and not only that, as we speak, Nicole, states are hiring private contractors 
to kick people, poor people off of Medicaid. And so here you have this huge exponential increase in military spending where the war in Ukraine becomes a very convenient pretext. But the way the capitalist system is constructed in America, it's not the same as constructed everywhere, not the same as in Europe even. But in America, like states are actually paying private contractors to find poor people and evict them from Medicaid. Yeah, some states have already started this process by hiring, like you're saying, these private contractors who are overall going to make millions of dollars of going through state-based roles of people who are on Medicaid and figuring out whether they still qualify for the ridiculously low level that you're supposed to have, income level you're supposed to have. And just let me ask you, so the Medicaid, there was Medicaid expansion because of COVID, right? Right. So March 2020, in the very first Coronavirus Response Act, states got this 6%, a little more than 6% boost in funding. And the key was to get that funding. They had to halt those disenrollments that they regularly do. But just for people, you know, for people who haven't been on Medicaid or, you know, aren't familiar too much with the program, Already, lots of people aren't on Medicaid, even though they're eligible for it. A quarter of uninsured people, seven about 7 million people in 2020 were eligible but remain uninsured, even though if you have access to care, especially in this country where you could go bankrupt easily from you know a one trip to the hospital, like wouldn't you get on that if you could? But there's all these barriers. You can miss a piece of mail. If a state needs more documentation, the state only needs a minimum of 10 days. They only have to give you a minimum of 10 days to find whatever documentation you need and submit it and like, you know, get it in. Some states can even, will even ask people without income to prove that they don't have income. How do you prove a thing you don't have? I mean, just absolutely ridiculous. So essentially now because of the March, 2020 bill that extended this extra funding and said, you can't, you know, states, you have to stop your disenrollments. It might expire. Congress might let that expire right now. I'm looking at that article that I think we were all looking at from David Sirota's website, The Daily Poster, and I think it's a really important, useful site. So because of Medicaid expansion, first with Affordable Care Act, but now especially with COVID, where I think the post says 77.8 million people are on Medicaid. That means they would not be getting health care if they weren't getting this government program that was designed exclusively for poor people. Right. And in September, the Urban Institute estimated that up to 15 million people might lose their Medicaid coverage if the government decides to let this funding lapse and to restart the disenrollments. The Georgetown Center for Children and Families estimated in February that 6.7 million children are likely to lose coverage. There's already... One of every 100 families with children in poverty right now, only 21 of them are on the on the cash welfare program. I mean, this is we have millions and millions and millions of children in this country, in this country of all of all places in poverty. And yet states are starting to spend. And with, you know, the sign off of the federal government soon enough, states are starting to spend millions of dollars to kick people off. I mean, it's just the most ridiculous thing. And the private companies are like little scummy you know, I would say vultures, but vultures prey off of the dead. These companies prey off of the still living. But what they're basically making the argument for to the states is, look, you hire us and give us the authority to go after the medic people on Medicaid. And a whole bunch of people will no longer be eligible after the emergency 
action, the emergency COVID-related spending bill expires in the next couple of weeks. But even more so, we can get a lot of people off of Medicaid because a number of people will not adequately fill out the paperwork if they have been contacted by a state-sponsored program and told you have to now prove it. Either you have to prove that you have no money or you have to prove you're meeting other eligibility requirements. I mean, the problems of people who are in poverty are so great that the idea that you're going to mess up with paperwork or you're not going to see paperwork or you've been evicted and you move so that the mail that comes doesn't come to the right address. Like all of these problems that are really the problems of the poor. And when I'm talking about the problems of the poor, I'm talking about a big part of the American population. People who are eligible just won't be able to to meet the requirements. They will get kicked off. And again, the majority of people getting kicked off will be children. I think it's so important to drive home and really make incredibly clear what's happening. The United States Congress is working on um, almost $800 billion spending bill for the Defense Department, more than the department asked for, more than the Biden administration asked for, more than even the Defense Department asked for specifically for aid in Ukraine. It's a quote unquote Republican defense bill, according to Republicans in the House. And that's all happening while... States are now paying, actively paying contractors to kick people off Medicaid. So the people making money right now are the military industrial complex, the contractors kicking people off Medicaid, and the people who are losing are the poor, are people, the rest of us who are desperately trying to hang on to any form of health insurance, which is, of course, the only way you can get health care in this country, really. Before we move on to another area related to this topic, I want to, again, frame it for us because we're socialists. This is the socialist program. And the socialist approach to war is always a big challenge for a socialist movement. A lot of times, the, the tendency is to go along with your government, even though you normally identify your government as being militaristic, imperialistic, pro-war, when the war hysteria gets to be at a fever pitch when the demonization of the enemy is at the all-time high and society and social pressure is moving in the opposite direction, the tendency is to go along. The tendency is to succumb. And, you know, one of the great lessons from Eugene Debs at the time of the beginning of World War I or the U.S. entry into World War I is that Debs, like the Bolsheviks in Russia, like the Serbian Socialist Party, like some sectors of the global socialist movement, he stood up. He didn't give in to the hysteria. And he said, look, the real war that workers should fight is not against other workers somewhere else. Don't be drawn into the war hysteria. The problems of poor people, the problems of working people, the problems of our people, meaning our class, our problems really are here. And he said, so I'm not going to fight any war but a class war because my enemy is at home. And he tried eloquently to tell uh, the people of the United States, the workers, oppose this war, World War I. And for having made a speech against the war, he was sentenced at age 66 to 10 years at hard labor. And he went to prison. He did the right thing. Eugene Debs did the right thing. And what we're trying to show in our program with the socialist program 
is that even when the hysteria of war is great, it's important to keep going back to these themes, that the war is a war against, it's a rich man's war, because look what they're doing. They're spending more and more of our money to build the defense contractor, and they're kicking our kids, meaning the kids of the working class, off of health care coverage. I mean, how could they pretend to care about human beings somewhere else and treat children in the United States the way they're being treated. When poverty, childhood poverty spikes by 41% just in the month of January, and these rich politicians in Capitol, like on Capitol Hill like Amy Klobuchar go on TV and cry crocodile tears for Ukrainians, well, what about the poor kids in the state of Ohio, Amy, who are losing Medicaid? Shouldn't you be like spending your time representing them? Anyway, I just want to make the point that we have to we as socialists are fighting for our class, our people, the poor, the workers in the United States, which means opposing the imperialist propaganda of our class opponents, meaning the, the capitalists. And this seems simple, and it's very simple when it's peacetime. People love Eugene Debs at socialist conferences or branch meetings or whatever. But when you have to go out on the street and public opinion has been whipped up behind the war makers, like for a no-fly zone, then you find out what people are really made of and whether their socialist principles are true. Yeah, and I, I think that that's really true. And I, I think that it really ties into some of the issues of hypocrisy that we brought up in earlier shows. Because I know we talked about polls of people supporting the war and supporting the even the possibility of a no-fly zone, which is crazy. But, you know, there's also been a real admission that... African-Americans, other people of color here may not feel that same way because of the same hypocrisy. Mm. It ties into the fact that not only have the Ukrainian military and so many of the people been shown on camera to be treating black people and other people of color in Ukraine being treated so badly, being treated in a really racist way. But also it ties into what you were just talking about, that these are our tax dollars going over to fund other people who are not only treating other people bad, our people badly over there, but these are the same funds that we're being denied here, right? The U.S. government, these corporations are talking about democracy in Ukraine, but we can't get a voting rights bill here at home. You know, people are being constantly denied and being pushed back by these voter suppression bills. And the other thing I wanted to bring up is the border, the southern border, because at the same time, when you have more Ukrainians showing up at the southern border, people may not realize that and being exempt from these really racist Title 42 laws that are basically being used to either not admit or to deport Haitians, Nicaraguans, other people seeking asylum, they are Ukrainians are largely able to circumvent that type of treatment and come in. And so when you have this, our tax dollars, our funds not being used for us, you know, not having the our democratic rights respected here at home, but we're spending our money to supposedly defend someone else's democratic rights in Ukraine. That's what builds up, I think, a real bitterness and a real sense of hypocrisy among a large portion of the population. I'm not sure if they're polled in these different polls that <laughs> are given, mm. but I think that as socialists, we have to stick up for the rights of all working people here and to 
include that in our program of outreach to people. Esther, I think that's a, a really important point. And, you know, it might sound like, oh, well, why would Ukrainians be on the, the Mexican-U.S. border right now? But I want to explain why that is the case. And that actually is the case in pretty high numbers. Most people in Ukraine with who have Ukrainian passports, they don't need a visa to come into Mexico by plane, but they do need a visa to come into the U.S. So there are a lot of people, you know, there are reports now that there are a lot of people from Ukraine and Russia who are coming in to Mexico and they are getting exempted from this Title 42 which I'm going to quote from a Time magazine article. Title 42 is an obscure and controversial public health rule that allows U.S. officials to circumvent the normal trappings of immigration procedure, including asylum interviews, unquote. And people might remember that it was actually Trump who first invoked the use of this rule in March 2020. But President Biden has used it far, far more to expel people than Trump did. And yeah, to your point, I mean, it's mostly, you know, the people who are coming to the border Salvadorans, Guatemalans, Hondurans, Haitians, Nicaraguans, these people are either being kept in Mexico or returned to their home countries. And a lot of people, you know, the Time article I'll note mentions Russians, Ukrainians, as well as people from India and China and a few other nationalities are often exempted at higher rates than others. But the main people who are at these borders are not, you know, people from India or people from China. They're people from Central and South America. And right now, people from Ukraine. Yeah. So on Saturday, Actually, there was a change in the policy recently. So the Biden administration just said that it would no longer use the public health order known as Title 42 to deny U.S. entry to unaccompanied migrant children. But everybody else is still being thrown into this category. And, you know, when I really think about the fact that Haitians are still being deported every day, thousands of Haitians are being deported, you know, thousands of other people from coming from countries where we've wrecked their country. We've gone into Honduras, Guatemala, and we've created the conditions where they have to flee these corrupt, violent regimes that we've propped up, but we are not allowing them to. So that's what reinforces this hypocrisy that we see and reinforces all the arguments and the things that people were talking about a few weeks ago when they talked about Palestine and talked about Yemen, when he talked about Syria, where we're still occupying one third of the country. So, you know, I want to keep that in the front of my mind, as well as these issues around economics and stuff, too, because that's really shows our connection to working people, you know, throughout the global south, throughout, you know, all these countries where the U.S. is basically, you know, killed and, you know, assaulted so many people around the world. Very important points. And, you know, there's the issue of racism, which is so ever present in in everything in the United States. So you can't actually think about any foreign policy issue, any immigration issue, any domestic issue without framing it in the context of what we know to be true in terms of the dominant feature of racism in America. And then it's also combined with the politics. Immigration is also highly political. Take Cuba, for instance. Starting in 1995, the U.S. adopted what was called the wet foot, dry foot policy towards Cuba. If you were a Cuban and you got into a boat, not like the Haitians who might get into a, a rickety boat, but if you got in a boat and you could land and put your dry foot on Florida, on the territory of Florida, you are going to be given residency in the United States and after a year be allowed to pursue citizenship. So it was this incentive to for Cubans. I mean, can you imagine if the U.S. said to all the people in the Caribbean, 
just get here. Just get to America, and then we're going to put and you dry on off a, your foot. Dry first. off your foot. Come on with a dry foot, and we're going to we're going to give wow. you a path to citizenship. Obviously, the U.S. was trying to destabilize Cuba. And then when Obama started to normalize relations with Cuba, it was only then at the end of the Obama administration that the wet foot, dry foot policy ended. So we have to look at all of these issues from the lens of, as you put it, Esther, the hypocrisy, like some lives matter a lot more than other lives. Ukrainian lives seem to be mattering a lot more than the lives of people coming from Central America or from Haiti. And if you can't, we played on a show two weeks ago, those audio clips from people saying, look, these are people who are dying, who are from a civilized, a, a European country. And they have blonde hair and blue eyes. Blonde and- hair and blue eyes. And, and they look like they could be our neighbors. Like, who are the presenters here? Obviously, the lens of racism is ever present. And then there's the other lens of politics. Who is being demonized? and who is becoming sort of a privileged entity. A lot of that is based on U.S. foreign policy. In the U.K. right now, families are being offered 350 pounds a month, I think, to house a Ukrainian refugees. And, you know, this is the same U.K. that has tried to deport long-term Jamaican residents under policies where they basically wanted to get rid of people who came to the U.K. decades ago and even fought in wars with them. You know, people, the whole class of elderly people who fought in World War II with the UK, you know, who fought with England. And they couldn't prove, they couldn't prove because when they came 40 years earlier, they couldn't prove because they didn't have papers because because of the way the colonial policy of the British government was working towards the people in the Caribbean in particular. Right, and then you have people right across the channel in France who are still dying, basically, trying to, you know, illegal immigration into the UK. Recently, there were, I think, dozens of people killed in in one of these rickety boats, right? And still, they don't want these people coming over from France and denying them any type of refugee status. But they want to offer this money to people who want to house a Ukrainian refugee. So these things aren't lost on people. You know, it's, it's right there in your face and you can see the hypocrisy and the racism. And so many of the people who are coming to Europe from Africa, from the Middle East, are people who are actually fleeing conflicts caused directly by NATO. I mean, the people who are being treated with such racist contempt by European authorities, becoming, you know, the main targets of the racist European far right. A lot of them, a lot of them are fleeing the chaos caused by the U.S. invasion of Libya, which not only wreaked absolute havoc inside of Libya, but also destabilized all of North Africa and big parts of West Africa, and are fleeing the consequences of the invasion of Afghanistan, another NATO war of destruction. We have to keep emphasizing, maybe we sound like a broken record. That's okay, because you, when you think about how people are bombarded with imperialist and racist propaganda in the news every day, you don't even know it's propaganda because it's repeated over and over and over again. It doesn't seem like an anomaly. It seems like it must be true because it's said over and over again. The images from the battlefield in Ukraine are heartbreaking. You know, you see elderly people being carried out by younger people and and, and a city besieged and and not having electricity. You feel feel the, the suffering of the people, but you could do that in Syria where the United States has been bombing and supporting counter-revolutionaries 
and right-wing al-Qaeda forces for the last 10 years. You could feel it if the media did the same thing for the Libyans or if they have done the same thing for the Iraqis. Or Yemen, where it's the world's worst humanitarian crisis and it only pops up in the news when there's a new report out calling it the world's even bigger, biggest humanitarian crisis every three months. And it's U.S. Pentagon Special Operation Forces that are coordinating the bombing coordinates with Saudi Arabia. Like, if we saw those images, those terrible, heart-wrenching images every night on TV, the American people would be like, we must do something about Yemen. You know, but that's the capitalist media. It's very selective, it's very political, and it very much tracks U.S. foreign policy. Who's the good guys? Who's the bad guys? It's not because they're good or bad necessarily. It's because whether or not they're in the camp that's under the domination of U.S. imperialism. I mean, it's it basically boils down to that. I referenced this much earlier in the show, this clip that Esther found from the Sunday talk shows from the State of the Union with Dana Bash. This is Jake Sullivan. He's on right before Amy Klobuchar, which is the earlier clip we played. But it's not really Jake Sullivan that's like, you know, his words aren't actually as interesting, I think, as Dana Bash and the way she's really, really pushing this. The media. The media. Dana Bash is the host of CNN's State of the Union show on Sunday. And just, you know, listen I'm going to play this clip. Listen to how she's framing things and what the questions are. And that remember, she's actually Jake asking. Sullivan is considered a real hawk. So listen to mm-hmm. listen to the reporter versus the hawk. I want to ask about China. China coordinated the timing of an invasion with Russia. Uh, they waited till after the Olympics. They're continuing to do business with Russia. Do you consider Xi Jinping a co-conspirator with Vladimir Putin in this war against Ukraine? Well, we believe that China, in fact, was aware uh, before the invasion took place that uh, Vladimir Putin was planning something. They may not have understood the full extent of it because uh, it's it's very possible that Putin lied to them the same way that he lied to Europeans and others. Uh, We also are watching closely to see the extent to which China actually does provide uh, any form of support, uh, material support or economic support Uh, to Russia. It is a concern of ours. uh, And we have communicated to Beijing that we will not stand by and allow any country uh, to compensate Russia for its losses from the economic sanctions. Would you you sanction China if they did help out Russia? I'm not going to sit here publicly and, and brandish threats. But what I will tell you is that we are communicating directly, privately to Beijing that there will absolutely be consequences for uh, large-scale sanctions, evasion efforts, or support uh, to Russia to backfill them. I mean, she asked him a yes or no question. Are they co-conspirators? And he sort of, you know, tiptoes around it and is like, well, you know, they knew this and they knew that, but we don't really know what they knew actually. But, uh, you know, but but yeah, I mean, we don't like them, you know. I think he was almost at a loss for words. He was. I mean, like, there was the a hawk, long pause. The, the hawk was at a loss for words, like... But wow. then, and then she because, interrupts him. And, and also because, I mean, Sullivan and Victoria Newland and Anthony Blinken, all of them, they're actually wondering whether there's some space where they could start to woo China away from Russia. I mean, they're geostrategic, you know, plotters and planners. 
Like the way they're doing it with Venezuela. Suddenly they're in Caracas and they're meeting with Maduro and wondering if Venezuela would like to sell oil to the United States. They're looking to see, right now their main target is Russia. So if they can isolate Russia, if they could find any you know, distance between China and Russia. So obviously Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, doesn't want a national TV. He says he doesn't want to publicly brandish threats. No, he wants to privately brandish threats. Which he essentially said. Yeah, he wants to be able to do that in private as a bargaining chip and hoping to see if China can be moved over away from the United States. But Walter, the media really sounds like rabid dogs. I mean, they're really... They're incentivizing everyone to speak more and more and more in the most extreme militarist terms. Yeah, I mean, in in the sort of the tortured logic of the corporate media, I think these journalists think that we're holding the public officials accountable because what they want apparently is an all-out war with Russia. And, oh, these cowardly Biden administration officials won't give us what they want. I mean, I think that's actually what's going on in these reporters' twisted brains with no regard for the unbelievable consequences that could have on on the rest of humanity. Well, Walter, I think you're right. And the extra horrendous part about that is that she doesn't interrupt other officials and press them on like, well, what are you going to do about the fact that children's poverty went up 41% in January? That's not addressed in the headlines or in the State of the Union show on Sunday morning. And even if it is, it's maybe asked about like, oh, so the Build Back Better Act is dead and you've renamed it. Okay, so what are you going to do? Okay, great. Like, let's move on, right? It's not, they don't push. They're not pushing on that. They're not saying, well, what about the millions of children who are literally not getting enough food right now? Their anger is very very selective. No, the only thing they'll press on is the price. They'll say, uh, you know, I know that you haven't been able to pass that 3.5 trillion, whatever, whatever. Over 10 years, yeah, which yeah. I won't say on, yeah. in the media, of course. Exactly. They don't they won't say that at all. But, you know, I listened to a number of reporters who they did bring on. You know, they don't they're not bringing on you, Nicole. They're not bringing on Brian. They're not bringing on you know, our friends at Breakthrough News. But they had a reporter who said that she was part of, basically admitted she was part of the kind of oligarch class in Russia. They had her on. They had Maria Ressa, who they've given a lot of uh, acclaim to because she basically is reporting in the Philippines against Duterte. They had the New York Times Moscow bureau chief. The people that they have on are really falling in line to basically refute the narrative that we know is true. They, they're still calling the 2014 an invasion by Russia into Ukraine. They don't ever talk about the 14,000 ethnic Russians, primarily ethnic Russians killed in East Ukraine. They never talk about any of that. So it's a real battle for narrative. It's continuing to be a real battle for narrative and a battle for truth in this war. I want to move to another topic. Congress gives final approval to make lynchings a hate crime. Well, you would think that would be pretty simple, right? Lynchings, the taking of individuals without a trial and stringing them up, shooting them, burning them alive. Thousands and thousands of people were lynched in the United States over many, many, many decades. You would think, well, well, of course Congress would call that a hate crime. This has gone on for a hundred years, more than a century, where the U.S. Congress refused to pass a law criminalizing lynchings. I mean, here we are a hundred years ago, more than a hundred years ago, Ida B. Wells was championing this cause. 
And the fact that the United States Congress couldn't pass an anti-lynching bill until 2022 says so much. Like, why would that be a problem? The way this became a mass issue in the United States, by the way, was the Communist Party. It was the Communist Party and Communist Party leaders and leading socialists like Ben Davis, Paul Robeson, and others were crusading against lynching. And during the entire time, the racist, the apartheid Congress in the United States absolutely said no. Cory Bush, who of course was a progressive activist and then became a congresswoman who led the fight to extend the moratorium on evictions last summer, she did the most in terms of campaigning and championing this. But it just says so much about the United States that you can't pass an anti-lynching law until 2022. Anyway, we don't have to talk much about it, but I just want to mention it. I want to salute Cory Bush for having taken the initiative. And now the U.S. Congress can say, no, look, we're against lynchings. But again, it's 2022. I think that Representative Bobby Rush from Chicago is the person who introduced it. And he's retiring. So it also may have been a, a way of kind of just marking his, he's, he said that was the most important thing that he had done, you know, as a legislator. So perhaps there was some effort to honor him and his career and what he's tried to do also. More than 4,400 African-American men, women, and children that we know of were hanged, burned alive, shot, drowned, and beaten to death by white mobs between 1877 and 1950. And that's that we know of. And there's a lot of dispute about that because like Manning Maribel also in his book, he did another one of his books. He did a, a chapter I remember was from the mid 70s about the undercount of lynchings. He thought the number was actually about double that. And again, in the United States, lynchings were parties. Lynchings were social events where large numbers of white people would come together to see the execution the gross mutilation of black people who were lynched without any trial and people would bring picnic baskets and there'd be music. And then there was the killing. It was a social event. This was America. We talked with Gerald Horn, Esther. I know you talked to Gerald. I talked to Gerald at, at length because some people on the left were saying that January 6th, you know, right wing assault on Congress. They were just like, well, whatever, group of misguided people or people who weren't that serious or people who didn't really expect to, you know, overthrow the Congress. It wasn't really a seditious conspiracy. They were just there. But that's the way the lynch mob always was in the United States. I'm not saying the January 6th people were lynchers. I'm saying the racist mob in America is a factor in American politics. Large numbers of white people coming together and acting as a mob. And usually the police were an auxiliary to the mob. Sometimes the police tried to resist the mob, but usually they were an auxiliary to the mob. And this kind of enforcement of racist domination over oppressed and especially black people in America. And again, 2022, finally the U.S. Congress gets it together to say, yeah, uh, let's make lynching a criminal offense. I think we have to credit the uprising against racism for giving this whole movement, you know, some oxygen, because as you said, this bill, this effort has been languishing for decades in Congress. And I also wanted to mention that, you know, not only is that 
figure in dispute between 1877 and 1950, but the Equal Justice Initiative just started research recently and into the Reconstruction era. And just with what they've been able to uncover so far, you're talking about 2,000, at least 2,000 men, women, and children lynched in just the 12-year period during Reconstruction between 1865 and 1876. And as you said, many of these events were, were group events. They were, they were events where people came as a mob to attack people. One that I keep remembering is the a convention where people came to New Orleans to support the right of black people to vote. And those trying to attend the convention were attacked in mass. This was a massacre and included many white people too. And they were all massacred because they were trying to support the right to vote. And many of the lynchings during that time were connected to people trying to vote or trying to fight for the right to vote. And while there are monuments, although many of them, as we know, are being taken down, there are monuments to people who supported lynchings or who participated in lynchings. And by that, I mean the Confederate generals, Confederate soldiers, monuments and memorials up all over the country up until 2018, when that same organization, the Equal Justice Initiative, decided to research and document a lot of these lynchings up until they, this private organization, a nonprofit, decided to put a memorial together. There was no memorial. There was no acknowledgement. There was no even documentation in many cases that these lynchings took place. You could walk across, maybe there's a housing development over a place where someone was lynched. Maybe there's a sidewalk over the place where someone was lynched. There's not, there's no markers of these horrific acts that took place in this country until 2018. And now there, now there is, but again, this was a private initiative and it had to be right. The government here wouldn't do something like that. I mean, in Virginia, we have Fort Pickett, right? That's named after the Confederate General Pickett. In 1864, Pickett, when he was when it was clear that the South was going to lose the war, he took he took white Southerners. These were some of the white people who were lynched. He took white Southerners out and lynched them because they were had refused to be conscripted into the Confederate Army. Fort Pickett, you can go see Fort Pickett. I mean, again, lynching in America. It wasn't simply the mob and it wasn't the individual. It was the state of terror because people knew lynchings could always happen. They could happen at a drop of a hat. And also with impunity, with impunity, with impunity. impunity. And so it created the terror, the terror of the mob. So even if the mob wasn't formed, there was always the knowledge that a mob could form and it could form quickly. You know, right here, we're in Washington, D.C. on Florida Avenue, right south of Howard University and right across the street from Howard Theater. Howard Theater in 1919, you had black soldiers who had returned from World War I who set up sniper posts on the top of Howard Theater because they were trying to disperse white racist mobs that were killing or trying to kill black people all up and down Florida Avenue and U Street. That was 1919. That was the same year as Tulsa and all the other massacres. Those are not considered lynchings, but when, in the case of Tulsa, you had white people, white racists flying over expansive black neighborhoods and very prominent middle-class black neighborhoods and literally dropping bombs from airplanes. Is that a lynching? Well, of course they're lynching. Hundreds of people died. Here we are, 2022. The U.S. Congress finally says, you know what? We're going to have a criminal offense 
called lynchings. I want to go on to another story. I consider this to be the perfect headline from the Washington Post, the most perfect headline from the past couple months. Get this one. Workplace harassment does what? You think workplace harassment, probably really bad for women, right? Okay. Bad for women. Workplace harassment undermines Pentagon spying in Europe, documents say. What? Pentagon intelligence officers allege they struggle with toxic bosses, say some colleagues spy on each other. Walter, the big <laughs> problem with uh, workplace harassment apparently is that it undermines America's efforts to spy effectively in Europe. <laughs> It's like literally impossible for the mainstream corporate media to write an article that's not terrible. I mean, how didn't, how, so, didn't somebody see this headline and think, wait, wait, um, are you sure you want to write this? That can't be right. Is that really the angle we're going for? I mean, you can take a, a massive social issue that affects millions and millions of people, of course, primarily women workers, and and reduce it to a problem for U.S. imperialism for for sort of the most underhanded and, and least noble component of U.S. militarism, which is the spy network that it has all around the world. I mean, a complete disservice and, and again, an expression of contempt for the working class of the United States that's dealing with this unbelievably serious issue. I even love the first sentence of this article. Quote, military diplomats operating in Europe are subject to what they describe as toxic workplace conditions that include colleagues spying on each other, undermining one another by exposing potentially derogatory information and harassment of female colleagues. I mean, even the ordering in that first sentence, right? Totally the afterthought. And then the next, you know, four paragraphs are about this toxic culture is a threat to national security, et cetera, et cetera. Well, maybe the DIA shouldn't have quite so much surveillance I just wanted to add while we were talking about spying that the Supreme Court said this month that torture at a CIA black site is a state secret. And people who are looking at the rights of the CIA, the latitude that the CIA has to do its work or do its dirty work is greatly expanded by this ruling. And so it's something that we should continue to watch as well as the Supreme Court looking at other cases that may involve access of the press and of the news media to these types of secrets. All right, let's go on to pay a little bit more attention to the issue of censorship. The First Amendment of the United States Constitution says, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. That's the First Amendment. Now, of course, when Facebook decides that you're no longer going to be allowed to post on a platform, or when YouTube says, for instance, that all of the content that came from RT or from Sputnik or from Rupley is taken down, again, it's not the government passing a law saying that these platforms no longer have rights. These are private capitalist companies that exercise this censorious capacity to limit speech. Last week on Wednesday, we had this show with Lee Camp, journalist, activist, comedian. We talked about the fact that everybody at RT America was laid off, and he wasn't quite sure why they were, but he suspected that they're behind the scenes, there had been like a lot of pressure brought by the U.S. government. Well, now, in the last couple of days, we have learned that all of RT's content on YouTube has been taken down, all of it. 
RT was one of the most popular websites on YouTube in the world. Lee Camp had his show redacted tonight. Eight years of shows gone. They're gone now. They're no longer accessible on YouTube. Those were videos. Abby Martin had 550 episodes of Breaking the Set, where she became a well-known journalist. I myself, I was on RT. I had hundreds of interviews over since 2007 or 2008. I just went to look. All of that's gone. So the private capitalist corporations will decide this speech, this content is no longer accessible to the American people. And I don't see any protest whatsoever from the mainstream capitalist corporations who say, wow, this is really dangerous that Facebook can decide or YouTube can decide what we can see and what we can't see, what content is okay, what's permissible. You know, there's absolute silence or even worse, I'd say an embrace. They think like, finally, there was the ability of these technology companies or the U.S. government or some entity to make sure that the American people wouldn't hear these points of view. Again, think about it. Lee Camp, progressive, anti-war, anti-racist comedian, eight years of shows, or Abby Martin or Chris Hedges, all of that content just you know removed again in the middle of this patriotic fervor. It goes back to what I, we were talking about with Eugene Debs. At a certain point, speech itself becomes criminalized and the First Amendment, the embrace of so-called democracy just goes straight out the window. Anyway, that's the kind of time that we we live in. At the same time, again, on the Sunday talk shows, the show Reliable Sources, which covers the press, they put up a graphic and the title was the top 10 most censored countries. And so check out this list. Cuba Equatorial Guinea, Eritrea, Saudi Arabia, Iran, Turkmenistan, Belarus, North Korea, China, and Vietnam. Esther, you know, those are the countries that either voted no or abstained on the resolution condemning Russia. Exactly. So this list is put out by the Committee to Protect Journalists, which is a very controversial group in terms of its funding by these millionaires and, and everything. So you want to take that list with an extra grain of salt. So this is how the mainstream media, corporate media, wants to characterize other press organizations and other countries, but not really look at what's happening here. Walter, what are the big stories in Liberation News this week? Well, two articles that I want to point out relate to the crisis in Ukraine one is about the issue of the no-fly zone that we opened the program talking about. There's a new pamphlet that's been produced explaining in very clear language why people should oppose the imposition of a no-fly zone over Ukraine. You can find that article on the homepage of Liberation News, and you can find links to download that pamphlet so you can distribute it yourself in your community, at your workplace, in your schools. Another piece on Ukraine that I want to encourage everyone to read is titled, The Working Class Must Reject the New Cold War, Five Points of Unity. This highlights some of the most important things that we should be saying as anti-war people, as progressive people, as socialists, right now in the face of this war frenzy to build the movement against war and imperialism. And finally, I want to recommend an article titled 50,000 Mexican Women Say No to Femicide. This was about an International Women's Day demonstration that took place in Mexico City against violence against women and the murder of women. This is, I think, a really inspiring example of the type of militant 
fighting women's rights movement that we need to build here in the United States as well. And you can check out many, many more articles on liberationnews.org. All right. Wednesday, we'll be having another conversation with Eugene Prier focused on another element or feature of the war crisis. Eugene and I are going to be talking about Lenin's policy towards Ukraine and the other non-Russian nationalities in what was then the emerging Soviet Union following the Russian Revolution. Of course, Putin, in part of his angry speech prior to the military operation or invasion of Ukraine, essentially denounced Lenin and the Bolshevik policy on the national question towards the non-Russian nationalities. A lot of people don't know what what that is and what Lenin's political position was and what the Bolsheviks' position were, and also how the Soviet Union created a multinational socialist project. And of course, in spite of all and many of the defects that people might cite about the Soviet Union, the people in Russia and Ukraine lived as sisters and brothers, as comrades for so many decades, enjoyed the benefits of a cooperative society defeated fascism together during World War II. So Eugene and I will be talking about that in in greater depth. Again, we want people to understand some of the basic and core teachings of socialism. And to do that, you have to read what Lenin wrote and to understand the policies of the Bolsheviks during that period. Again, you won't get any of that, Nicole, from the mainstream media, but you can get it here from the socialist program And again, we have our seminar coming up. If people like the show, if they rely on the show, they should become a subscriber to the show. And we can also invite you then to our monthly seminar. That's right. We'll have our monthly seminar next Tuesday, March 22nd. So a week from today, it's 7 p.m. Eastern and 4 p.m. Pacific. And we would love for each and every one of you listening to subscribe, to help keep the show moving, to help keep the show running. We can't do it without you. And then join us next Tuesday. All right. And again, go to Liberation News. Check out that little brochure, Why People Should Oppose a No-Fly Zone. It's very accessible. The language is you know, very readable. It's really good as an outreach tool in your community, at your school, with your family, with people who need perspective and will just get a pro-war perspective from the mainstream media. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.